0: Welcome to Legal Lens, a buyer podcast on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. My name is Andy Serby. Today, I'm glad to be joined for our last episode of 2023 by Ira Dizengoff of Akin Gump. His casework reads like a roundup of some of the biggest bankruptcy cases to come through the course in recent years, with billions of dollars in liabilities both between them and within each one. Some of those mega cases include Diamond Sports Group, Silicon Valley Bank, GTT Communications, Avaya, and Talon Energy, and that's just the ones that are actually in court. He's also advised in cases like Sanchez Energy and Payless Holdings in out-of-court restructuring efforts. His representations include counseling debtors, unsecured creditor committees, and lender groups, among others. Iroh? Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Andy. Pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start off as we usually do with a little chat about how you got into law and how you found your way kind of from a broader legal practice into working
1: bankruptcy. It's terrific to talk about that. I I like to always energize and excite young people when they're thinking about the laws of career. My path, I wish it was unique. I got out of college with basically no plan whatsoever. It's what I refer to as the swap plan, which is students without a plan. (laughs) Uh, And I fell into that category. So I figured, oh, I need an advanced degree. Why not go to law school? It'll give you lots of optionality, which actually turns out to be the case. So I went to law school. I went to the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law at Yeshiva University here in the city, in the village. And I got a terrific education. My first exposure to bankruptcy, the school had a program there called the Alexander Fellows Program, which was highly competitive. And what they did in lieu of classes, you got to intern for a judge. And I thought, there's no better way to spend your day than not having to go to class and only having to intern for a judge. So I figured this is a great path for me all I'll do is write one paper at the end and I don't have to take any final exams. So I thought it'd be a terrific thing. I passed the cut to get into this program and they gave me a list of judges. There were probably 30 district court judges. There was one bankruptcy judge that was on the list. And I looked at it and I said, ah, you know what? I'll pick the judge. It turned out it was Neil Blackshear in the Southern District of New York. Oh, wow. So I signed up for that program. And this is really just happenstance. It was January of 1991. And I was spending that semester in Judge Blackshear's courtroom. So the first day that I showed, up in his courtroom, it was just around uh, Martin Luther King Day. It was the day after or the day before something like that. And I showed up in his courtroom. Pan American Airways had just filed for bankruptcy. I know I'm dating myself a little bit. And it had just filed for bankruptcy. I knew nothing about bankruptcy, really. I showed up to basically say, hey, I'm here for work. You know, Put me to work. I'm happy to do anything you want. And I literally go down. This is at the Customs House at One Bowling Green, downtown New York. And there are hundreds of people outside the courtroom. There are cameras everywhere. I was like, what am I doing? What is this? There was so much excitement, so much buzz attending to it. I get to the courtroom. They're like, oh, new interns here, have a seat. And they sat me in the courtroom on what was the first day hearing for Pan Am, And I was like, this is as exciting as it gets. And I thought to myself then, this is the intersection of where business meets law. And I thought that that day, And it turns out to actually be the case 32 years later. So it was what piqued my interest. I then took subsequent bankruptcy law class. And when I was fortunate to be a summer associate at a large New York law firm, they had a robust bankruptcy practice and I started doing it there. And my interest stayed with it. And I was like, this is the career path that I wanna chart. The
0: more I talk to people in this game, the more there are a couple of things I think about. One is that I have met very few people who went to law school and thought I'm gonna do bankruptcy like from day one. And the second thing is I think a lot about, I interviewed in a prior life, a judge here in California, and she told me that bankruptcy is where the light starts to bend. That's a shrewd observation. It's very true. Very true. (laughs) That was six or seven years ago. Never forgot it.
1: The best part of the access to Judge Blackshear's courtroom is the clerks there were amazing. One of them is still one of my lifelong friends We're very tight. At the time that I was in his courtroom, there were cutting edge bankruptcy issues in front and center of him. So he was really one of the very first judges to decide on bankruptcy code section 1110, which talks about how Mm -hmm. lessors are treated in bankruptcy. But it was a very novel issue at the time because not many large airlines had filed for bankruptcy. And I'm running off to the New York Bar Association trying to find law review articles. before the advent of everything being online. And I'm trying to educate the judge on exactly what happens here. What did Congress mean when they enacted it? I just thought it was the most exciting thing I'd ever been exposed to. Absolutely. Sounds incredible. I don't think a lot of people uh, get into bankruptcy expecting day
0: one to be one of the most camera ridden days of the whole sector, if if not that year in the industry. Exciting time. From there, I'd like to see how you ended up at Aiken and kind of built your practice there.
1: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to discuss it. After I was, I was at the judges and did the internship and then I was fortunate to get a summer Position at a very large law firm, which currently doesn't exist. It was LaBeouf Lamb at the time, Libby and McRae. Um, as you know, that was a large restructuring that I had nothing to do with. I was long gone from there. But anyway, for four years I was there and I did a lot of bankruptcy stuff, most principally focused on their very large case at the time was the official committee of equity security holders in the Columbia Gas restructuring. Columbia Gas was in bankruptcy, believe it or not, for six years. They had exclusivity for six years. It was a fully solvent case. Everybody got paid par plus accrued and the equity holders kept their shares and the stock was in the 40s during the whole time of the bankruptcy. Fascinating exposure, a great way to be introduced to bankruptcy. I left that firm and then I spent Basically, 18 months at another firm that also doesn't exist. It was O'Sullivan, Grave, and Carabell that merged into O'Melvyn and Myers that merged after I had left. The exposure there was very different because that firm's focus at the time was really on what I would call the infancy of private equity. They did a lot of work for very well heeled private equity shops, which was more a distressed investor type. Let's go into this company, take control of the debt, and then can take control of the companies on the back end. Great exposure for me. One of my very good friends that I had met at LaBeouf had just made part partner, at Aiken, and he was like, oh, you should come work here. And I was like, great. What are we going to do together? He's like, we'll figure it out together. I was like, okay. So I joined Mike Stamer. (laughs) I joined Mike Stamer at the time. And this is vintage, like 1998. And together we toiled for about a year doing whatever came across our desk. We actually had one large data case, which was a Japanese foodstuffs conglomerate. We were the company and the creditors were represented by Don Bernstein at Davis Polk, which is kind of interesting as well. And then a year later, Danny Golden joined from Struck, which is also now imploded. Anyway, Danny joined from Struck with two other partners, One of which is Judge Beckerman, who sits on the Southern District right now. Another one is Fred O'Dare, who is subsequently retired. Danny was a very well-known bondholder lawyer in the restructuring space. He had a ton of access to people who were institutional investors. And Mike and I used to refer to it as he gave us the keys to the candy store which is effectively access to his clients and his connections. And we proved our mettle and told people we actually understood what we were doing. And it was a tremendous access to an opportunity set uh, where people were very interested in talking to people who were energetic, smart, well-versed, understood the emerging technologies of what was happening in restructurings and actually could help them. And over the course of the last 25 years, Danny has since retired, we have built the practice now, I really think, to being best in class. And we've expanded the offering effectively, not just to nuts and bolts restructurings per se. So I'll I'll just back up one second. I don't mean to date myself, but restructurings really have morphed over time. And in, in the vintage of like, I would call it the... Late nineties, early two thousands, there were just a ton of free fall bankruptcy filings. Creditors rarely negotiated before they had filed bankruptcy. Bankruptcy was usually occasioned by I'm running out of money, I've got a balance sheet that doesn't work. There's some kind of catastrophic event that happened that precipitated the bankruptcy. People would file, companies would stop paying interest, they would build tons of cash, and then they would just kind of sort out how to fix their capital structure during the course of the next, you know, one, two, three years or so. That all changed, I think, with the advent of the WorldCom and Enron bankruptcies. We were fortunate to have the creditors committee in WorldCom, and and in that window, I would call it between like 2000 and 2005, people were like, you know, because the code is changing to 18 month exclusivity, we really should focus on trying to get as much of the bankruptcy work done before we actually file, and really try and use a bankruptcy as an implementation tool to figure out how to deal with holdouts and figure out how to lock people into a deal. Um, So that really changed over time, and as a result, we morphed with our clients. We evolved with our clients. And mm-hmm. our clients were looking at capital structures under the stress and distressed arena much earlier. And they were looking at ways to kind of figure out how to take advantage of their positions and figuring out how to get the most of value out of it. And that happened you know, over those vintage years. Now it's kind of that's what happens. That's par for the course, and that's what people do. Um, but as as this, you know, as the practice evolved, that's how we evolved. And and today, our group is. Intertwined, We have a very integrated practice between our finance guys, our special situations, our financial restructuring litigators. We are, I think, somewhat of a bespoke solution for our clients where they come to us with complex problems all over the place, whether it's a mass tort bankruptcy or it's a liability management or something along those lines. And they're like, help us think through what can happen. Well, what you would do if you were in the shoes of a sponsor and how would you address this capital structure? Because it doesn't work. Here's the metric. Here's the statistics. It's just kind of upside down. What would you do and help us think through those things? And we found that our clients are actually doing that earlier. Um, than we would have expected, especially with maturity walls getting pushed out the way they have, but they are doing it early. So when stuff, you know, nowadays, when stuff tips into the 90s or high 80s, it's it's distressed. That used to be a first sign of stress. And now that's labeled as distress. And people are like, Mm -hmm. we need to address that much sooner and get effectively get lawyered up, get advised up and think through the mechanics of what can happen along the way. I think we're very, very good at thinking four and five steps ahead and charting the chess moves um, well in advance of people so that they actually the creditors understand what can happen and along the spectrum of the universe of acceptable outcomes along the way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And jumping off of
1: that point about Negotiations
0: and organization. I want to talk a little bit about your committee representations. Sure. So you've had some rep- you've had some work with uh, UCCs to start with in a few cases and they're multi billion dollar cases. I think everybody in the game knows that the UCC occupies kind of an interesting position because. They may be way out of the money, but uh, they still occupy this high leverage position within the context of a case. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how you approach occupying that space in specifically these massive, massive cases where you have attention and so much money and so many competing interests floating around.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I think is so attractive and so interesting about bankruptcy is just the complex set of factors and scenarios that go into every assignment. And when you think of the official committee role, it does occupy a unique spot in the in that ecosystem because courts look at the creditors committee as the arbiter of right and wrong. Yes, they're an advocate and yes, they're supposed to advance their client's position. And yes, you are the fiduciary for every unsecured creditor in that case, but you are also – from the court's perspective, you're supposed to call balls and strikes. You're not supposed to just go out on a limb and take every crazy position. You're supposed to, within the confines of your committee, harmonize competing interests. And I think the U.S. trustee's office does a very good job when they populate committees because they actually take that into account. So very often you see a representative of the funded debt. Typically, in the form of the indenture trustee, you might see a union representative, mm. you might see trade creditors, you might see employees in there, and everyone has a parochial interest. There's nothing wrong with having a parochial interest, and they should advocate for their parochial interest. But the collective always does better when people are on effectively the same side, trying to figure out how to make the pie as big as possible. I always tell people in our committee dynamic, like our job is to figure out how to whack that up, but first let's get the most for that pie as much as we. Possibly can, and then we'll figure out something that's equitable and fair that everyone could live with. There is no perfect solution in any case. There is no perfect solution. There's a famous Voltaire quote that talks about the perfect being the enemy of the good. And that is the case. But in Mm -hmm. bankruptcy, the idea is you get to an outcome that's good. And as a result, you try and implement that understanding people's positions, understanding where their vulnerabilities are, understanding what's good about their positions and what's bad. So the merits and demerits and educating people along the way so that you can actually build a forum in which to compromise. That's a great skill set of being committee counsel. And when you can do that and say, okay, this is what the committee brings to the table, and this is why you want us as part of your deal, that to me is the beauty of the restructuring arena. And when that comes together, there's great pride in, in getting that deal across the finish line.
0: Absolutely. Because I think it would be a very, it's a very common opinion that, you know, like one of the gateways to a consensual plan, or at least a plan that has like a very strong chance is to get the UCC under your wing.
1: Yeah. And I think that's because of the lofty role that they represent in front of the judges, because judges do look at you as the arbiter of right and wrong. So you can't just take a crazy litigation and put it in front of the judge and say, the committee wants to burn down the house. In the end of the day, you all hearken back to the foundational principles of what the code was premised on. And that is a rehabilitation of the debtor is probably the better path. If you can preserve the going concern, you should, if you can. Not at the expense of everything else, because- As I said, there's a lot of competing interests and everyone has an opinion and there's an opinion for a reason and they matter and you have to try and harmonize that. But if you if you hearken on those foundational principles and use that as your guiding light, I think for the most part, people can be educated and you can get to an outcome that everyone can say, oh, okay, good enough. We can live with that and let's go.
0: Notwithstanding the the debtor filings that you will often get accusing the UCC of trying to burn down the house, <laughs> it happens
1: a lot. <laughs> that, you,
0: that you that will sometimes by days precede the ninety nineteen motion. Yep. Juxtapose against that in the broad sense of committees. How does the approach change when you're when you talk about representing like an ad hoc lender group, like a group that has a, a lot more, let's say, like traditional privilege within the capital structure?
1: Yeah. I think a lot of times, and we do that a lot, as you know, our hoc group lineage is, is long and I think very impressive. I think for the most part, when you understand where value breaks, you want to get to an outcome that actually makes sense, but you don't want to overpay for that outcome. So as a result, if you're sitting at the capital capital structure and value is not really in question, you are the fulcrum security, then your view is, what can I part with that's going to let me get this company out of bankruptcy and on the road to transformation and success as fast as possible with as minimal distraction to the fundamentals of the business as I can. And you will try and do that by making an offer that you think is fair under the circumstances. Now, fair is always in the eye of the beholder. And an out-of-the-muddy constituency will look at it and say, well, I have hold-up value, so I'm going to fight you tooth and nail. And in the end of the day, and I I tell this to people often, like, you will win, okay? Because if value breaks and you're the fulcrum security, you will win. There is a fundamental cost to that. Fundamental Mm -hmm. cost in just the time and energy that it takes to do that. There's professional fees, et cetera, but also the impact on the business. And the end of the day, your recovery and your path to recovery is premised on that successful business. So you want to get to that outcome as fast as possible and put it on the road to recovery. And if you can do that as fast as possible and you're paying for that effectively, I would say you should. Now, does that mean you might pay a penny more than than you otherwise would? Yeah, but that's money well spent because it'll pay dividends down the road.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We talked a lot about up top during the stat sheet section of this about all the varied representation. Given your level of experience, I wanted to take a second to kind of see if there are any industry specific challenges. And you've done a lot of work in oil and gas, OG. Yep. So I was wondering if there are any specific challenges, especially since that sector has had a lot of tumult the last two to four years uh, that are kind of facing it. Yeah. Like there's just so much like expected volatility within it.
1: Yeah, so this is what I would say. The challenge is, especially in oil and gas land, which is you should overcapitalize the business. I know that there is always a tendency to say, let's put more debt on this company. And then, you know, that's fine because that's hard currency and I can look at it and I can mark that. I know exactly what my recovery is and I'm sitting in a preferred position. But you need the financial flexibility to weather the storm because, you know, who knows when Russia is going to invade Ukraine and the impact that's going to have across the spectrum on the oil and gas mm-hmm. world. And you can't account for that. If you don't have the financial flexibility, that takes a dramatic toll on the company and puts you in extremists. And when you're in extremists, that has its consequences. If you're sitting in a fulcrum security, great for you. If you're in the equity position, not great for you. You have to have that. I think if you're going to go through the restructuring process, take advantage of trying to fix the balance sheet the right way, then you actually should go the next step. And my view is when I say overcapitalize the business, that is more equity and less debt, right. especially in a commodity-driven business that is prone to fluctuations up and down of fluctuations and everybody knows how
0: much they, they love growing fast. They love acquisitions. Yes, very much so. Leaving to another sector, I initially had them separated out into uh, kind of telecom and cloud computing, uh-huh. but maybe let's just talk about tech overall because while the tech might not be the same, they're all facing kind of similar issues when we have like a rapidly changing regulatory environment, government bodies to negotiate with, and also a rapidly evolving set of products because tech is rapidly evolving. So anything specific about dealing with all that because you got to deal with like the FCC and everything. It's a whole thing.
1: I agree. So this is what I would say, Andy, which is sometimes in restructuring arena, what is lost in what I would call transformational restructurings. And this is where the fundamental business has to actually do something to be successful. So if that's turning copper into fiber is the public facing aspect of the restructuring. So we were the ad hoc group of creditors, one of the two ad hoc groups of creditors in Frontier. And Frontier is a consumer facing business. But the person who buys their internet usage from Frontier, that's the cable provider, they don't think, okay, I'm going to be better off when this company has a a good balance sheet and everything will be fine. They think my internet provider went bankrupt. I need to switch. And the churn factor that goes up is – is very front and center in the minds of the businesses and the executives. So while we can financial engineer and get to an outcome on a balance sheet perspective that actually works for the company and puts it on solid footing, the less we can actually be in court and people have to say, oh, my internet provider's in bankruptcy. We should avoid that as as all costs. We should do it as quickly as we possibly can, get the hard part of figuring out what balance sheets should look like done outside the public purview and then have a story to tell the public that basically says nothing to see here. It'll be done in, you know, 60 or 90 days and we'll be in and out of bankruptcy. And it's going to be a rock solid company on the future. That aspect of it, especially when something is consumer facing, which a lot of the tech world is, that sometimes is lost in restructurings. And you can't lose sight of that because when the churn, you know, goes up, it has its impact and it results right to the bottom line in the EBITDA. It's just so it's just inevitable. And the sooner you can do it, the better.
0: Right. It's kind of like how we would have issues with that in the uh, like the Texas freeze cases from a year or so ago. Yes. Where you would have people coming in saying like, I don't care about the balance sheet. I don't care about the litigation. I just want to know when
1: the power is coming back. exactly right. Exactly right.
0: Switching gears to kind of like a wider lens, I'd be remiss not to have noticed when I was initially looking at your profile and everything that you've gotten a couple of dealmaker of the year type awards. I would like to hear a little bit about what your approach is to deal making because that's been kind of a foundational point of when we talked about committees earlier yep. is cutting deals, knowing what you can give up, knowing how to make the pie as big as possible. So are there any kind of broad practices that you take, especially given the scale of these cases?
1: It's a great question, Andy. And here's what I say, dude, which is, and this is my like life lessons. I've gotten this from 30 years of practice in very large cases. A couple of things. One, no case is exactly the same. They're all bespoke. They all have unique levers. So appreciate that. Your experience informs the outcome. And you can say, oh, we did X, Y, and Z in this case. But it doesn't mean it always fits exactly the problem that's in front of you. So that's kind of lesson one. Two is, in large cases, leadership matters. And that's leadership on the advisor side. That's leadership on the investor side. That's leadership on the company side. You know, we represented the creditors committee and iHeart Communications. Giant case. They wanted the creditors committee on side. And I remember vividly a meeting where I called the CEO aside and I had a chat with him and his advisors were there. And I said to him, look, you want the creditors committee on side. Here's what we need to get done. And I know you might think that we're kind of out of the money and it's all about the funded dead guys, but here's what we need to get done. You want us on side. That's a PR win for you. And that's going to tell you to get your trajectory on the company out of bankruptcy. And you know, he kind of paused for a second because he was new to the restructuring arena and he talked to his, you know, his cadre of advisors, and they were all like, yeah, that really does actually matter. So appealing to the leadership, those that are in the position to actually drive outcomes matters. Now you have to be thoughtful and you have to be respectful and you have to understand how to bridge gaps. But if you do that, the outcomes actually are determinative and they actually make a difference. I think that that saves billions of dollars, honestly, over time. You have to be approached that with, especially in ad hoc bondholder groups, the size matters and you have to be thoughtful about your position. And you can't be disrespectful to the people who are in your group and just have much smaller position. You have to figure out how to deal with them and address their needs and be flexible enough that you can actually bridge gaps if you need to bridge the gaps. So it's not an easy thing to do. It kind of requires all the toolkits, all the tools in the toolkit that everybody has, but it's it's how you get to deals. That's how you get there
0: yeah absolutely and so moving on to kind of like we said up top this is the last episode that we're going to put on this year and now talking to you with so much varied experience i would really love to hear with 2023 coming to an end What do you think is your big lesson or takeaway or like what's the story of this year in restructuring to you?
1: It was an incredibly interesting year. I'll tell you what I think the takeaways from 2023 are. One is liability management is effectively here for the foreseeable future. As a result of wide open credit documents, the liability management tool is available to sponsors and they can and should use it because the option value for sponsors makes sense they're fiduciaries, just like everybody else is a fiduciary for somebody. They're fiduciaries for their limited partners and their investors, and they need to take advantage of that. So as a result of wide open documents, that is going to happen. So liability management exercises will happen. And I think they're clearly here for 24 and 25 and 26 until the credit markets really tighten and make the documents a lot tighter. So I think that that is one clear lesson that we see from 23 and it's going to keep on going. Two, I think creditors addressing those issues will always jockey for position vis-a-vis each other. Some refer to it as creditor and creditor violence. I don't really like that term. It's just a jockeying for position. That is here to stay as well. And as a result of the documents being open until the documents tighten, creditors will always do that. Now, there's pitfalls and there's occasion to see what happens as a result of those things and that will play out through the courts. But while it's there and it exists, I think 24 and forward, and this is also a lesson from 23, that's going to unfold over the course of the next year or two or three. The third lesson from 23 is we need guidance in the mass tort restructuring arena on third-party releases and whether they're permitted or not permitted. And we're going to get that guidance. As you know, last week, the Supreme Court heard an argument in Purdue. Uh, my partner was advocating on behalf of the Official Creditors Committee in a very forceful and, I think, eloquent way about why it actually makes sense in the restructuring arena. It's been part of the lexicon for the last 30 years. And it does make sense in unique and bespoke circumstances why that makes sense. But that will inform what happens in virtually the rest of the mass tort cases that will unfold. It's a tool in the arsenal of every major corporation that is facing mass tort type exposure, and they will use it. They just need guidance on how it's going to be implemented. So Terrific briefing in the Supreme Court, terrific oral argument if th- for those who listen to it. And we were going to get that guidance probably in June, is my guess. And we'll get that guidance and we'll all act accordingly.
0: All right. On the record, June. I'll let you know. We'll, we'll find out June, if you yeah, end up yeah, being yeah. right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think June. On the, the creditor on creditor violence thing, I was going to say, I don't think anyone actually uses that term. In these contexts, it's just what we all call it at the conference. Gotcha. And I was going to ask what the big takeaway for 2024 is, but I think we already answered that with the third-party releases discussion. So with that, Ira, it's been really great talking this afternoon. Thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts and close this year in structuring with us. Terrific, Andy.
1: Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it.
0: Absolutely. And thank you to our listeners for checking out this episode of Legal Lens. As always, you can subscribe or download every episode via Spotify or Apple and find thousands of articles with insights, research, and more from our team at thatwire.com. We'll see you in 2024.